Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. I'm joined as usual by Dr. Rick Hansen. So how are you doing today? I am very happy that we're going to do this particular episode. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this one as well. It's another year that's come to an end for us here, both personally and on the podcast. And I would like to kind of start this episode just by talking about that a little bit. Uh, Just speaking personally for a moment, the outpouring of support that the podcast has received from people has been really amazing. And I took a second to do a little inventory of everything we've done over the last year. So this year, we've actually posted 72 different episodes, which is crazy. We've spoken with, I think it's 28 different fantastic guest experts. And the podcast has been downloaded, uh, amazingly, almost a million times. We came in a little bit shy of the million number for the year as a whole, which certainly exceeded any reasonable expectations I would have had for the podcast going into the year. And it's just been really incredible on a personal level to receive that kind of support from people. It has been endearing to do this with you, Forrest, of Mm. course. People can imagine how it might be for me about that, and it's as good as you might imagine to do this with you. Also, it's been very reassuring Mm. and inspiring to get to talk with so many good people who are knowledgeable about what they do, have made efforts to get good at it, and then in turn are offering what they have learned and what they know to other people to help them too. And there's something kind of, like I said, reassuring for me about that, the sense that there's so many people around the world, most of whom we've never, ever heard about, who in their own ponds or Mm. puddles or big lakes of activity are sending ripples out to benefit a lot of people. And that was really neat. Yeah, no, I think that's a great reflection and a really good grounding for this episode, and any set of reflections heading into the new year. So today we want to do both a little bit of looking back and some looking forward as well. So what we're going to do today is we're going to do some reflecting on the past year of episodes, the various conversations we had with people, and then our series on Who Am I?, which was a major feature of, I would say, almost all of the conversations that we had that were just the two of us over the course of the year, the the nature of the messy human brain and the various uh, monsters that can lurk in the closet? And then how do we go about dealing with those in smart ways, both inside of ourselves and in our relationships with other people? And then I want to do a little looking forward, whether it's setting a resolution for ourselves or just talking about some of the things that are exciting you in the year to come. That's the territory that I want to explore today. So before we get into that, I do want to let people know about your Foundations of Wellbeing online program. Mm, Thanks. It's an online year-long program of personal development that walks people through how to grow 12 key strengths like courage, confidence, and compassion in their mind and heart. The structure of that online program is actually what we based the structure of our book together, Resilient, on. I know that registration for the 2020 cohort, if you will, of the program is open now, and there's currently a New Year's sale going on. Also, if you're a mental health professional, and I know that very flatteringly, there are mental health professionals who listen to this podcast, you can receive 20 continuing education credits through the program. So it's a good way to get those as well if you happen to be in the market for them. So before we get into kind of the material of today's podcast, is there anything else you'd like to mention about the program? Oh, thank you. Really, really briefly, if there's one thing I've learned in this life, It's the importance of practice. It's the importance of engaging our circumstances and especially engaging what's arising in the mind 
in a way that is skillful and helpful. That's what I mean by practice. Practice is really important. And in this Foundations of Wellbeing program, I've poured most everything I know about the fundamentals of coping and mental health in a very, very organized summary kind of way. And if I didn't already know this stuff, honestly, I would do this program because hmm. it's an amazingly efficient way at about an hour a week, spread over a year if you want to do it that way, which is a nice way to do it, to get a foundation of good deep training and the fundamentals of mental health. Yeah, I think that's a great summary. It is truly a great program. It's your flagship offering. Um, so if you're interested in Rick's work, if you've been enjoying these podcasts, if you've read any of his books, then I can tell you, I think that you'll enjoy it. And also, if you're somebody who's concerned about the cost of the program, there are scholarships that are available. I added up one time the amount, the dollar number of scholarships for hmm. the program that you've given away, and it came out to some truly ridiculous number. Um, so you are authentically very generous with that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so if you're interested in the program, I'll include a link to it in the description of today's podcast. And also, you can enter the code BEINGWELL, that's the name of our show in all caps, no spaces at checkout to receive an extra 10% off the purchase price of the program. So that's an offer for our podcast listeners. All that said, thank you for hanging on through that plug. I want to start by talking about the episodes that we did together, our series on Who Am I? Right. We explored a lot of different topics. Some of them included narcissism, sociopathy, borderline personality disorder, OCD, a depression, bipolar disorder, and a host of other topics, including anxiety, fear, loneliness. Some of the big building blocks that our psyche is really kind of made up of, for better or for worse, from time to time. From that series, is there anything that really stood out to you personally, or anything where in the process of doing those episodes you thought about differently or learned about? Anything that really stands out as a highlight to you uh, from the past year of talking about these subjects? So one thing that stood out for me was how we're all messed up, <laughs> right? Yeah. Who among us does not have anxiety or anger or a slump in mood? I mean, who among us does not have these sort of landmines in our own psyche that if someone happens to step on that one, you know, there's a loud explosion. So the universality of stuff it's normal to be neurotic. It's abnormal to be not neurotic. Now, I'm a big fan in gradually becoming non-neurotic. Call that the process of awakening and the ultimate aim of it all, the epitome of the fully awakened being, is someone whose mind um, cannot in any way, shape, or form support uh, any neurotic moment. Those tendencies just fall through the mind of an awakened being like a pebble through a cloud. Okay. But meanwhile, for myself and other people, perhaps, uh, it's normal to have these things going on, on the one hand. The other headline, though, for me, and I it's been an important one in my own life, is to recognize it, to kind of snap into clarity about it when you start to register that you're dealing with someone who has a significant, genuine psychopathology in some regard. You suddenly start to realize that this is a person who's very rigid let's say, about something, like it must be a certain way, and they have no tolerance around it. Or you recognize that this is someone who just has some kind of gaping, hungry hole in the core of their being, 
around which they're intensely preoccupied with being fed. Or you realize that this is someone who, deep down, doesn't believe that general norms that apply to other people apply to them. And if it's convenient, they're going to do it. Now, if it's not convenient for them or they fear the consequences of just lying or taking, then they won't. But it's not because of any kind of underlying moral standard. It's just situational and transactional. What can I get away with? So in any case, I've tended to err on the side of underpathologizing people, which is probably what you want in a therapist. Yeah, absolutely. On the other hand, man, I've just been smacked up by the, upside the head, figuratively, by various people at various times. I just didn't see it coming. And yet if I look back, I could have discerned the capacity for something pathological to come along. I'll just leave it at that. I've still got a question for you, Forrest. I wondered if you had a comment yourself. What stood out for you, generally, uh, when we did the series on Who Am I? Many things. I think I'll boil them down to a couple of big headers for me personally. First of all, just in doing the research that I did to prep for each episode, as people listening to the podcast almost certainly know, I am not a psychologist. Um, I'm not a mental health professional. I do this out of a sense of personal curiosity, and I kind of invite people to uh, come along with me on my own sort of journey of discovery. I think that's why I'm kind of a useful proxy for the audience in some ways here. So I just felt like I learned a lot personally, on the nature of pathology, the nature of the way that the brain works, how personal identity is created, and how we can get into perpetuating cycles of identity around certain things, the ways in which releasing attachment to something can be really painful because it can serve as a sort of concession to the possibility that we didn't have to do things that way in the past. And then just personally, a lot of the information on both depression and shame I found really personally revelatory and interesting. I've had certainly, I think at this point, I would describe it as a couple of major depressive episodes at various moments in my life. And just the material related to those topics, I found personally useful. Hmm. So that's certainly one big part of it. I just learned a lot through the process. Second, to speak to what you were talking about around pathologizing, one of the big topics that I didn't really realize existed in the medical literature is this question of over-pathologizing people. I agree with you that my instinct almost always is to under-pathologize people when I'm interacting with someone. And I think that we fall down a really slippery slope when we start to open up our friends and family to very casual diagnoses, particularly when it's the diagnosis of something like calling someone a sociopath. The, the barrier to entry on sociopathy is pretty darn high in terms of like a formal clinical diagnosis, as opposed to just kind of casually saying, oh, they're sort of a sociopath. And there are ways where through this process, I've had concerns that having conversations around what's the 10% or the 1% version of these various mental issues, which was a framework we used a lot in our conversations, kind of opens the door to that sort of very casual diagnosis of a friend as being a 1% sociopath. On the one hand, I think that can be really useful, practically speaking, in interacting with that sort of a person. On the other hand, you know, it's a slippery slope and you can run into some moral questions and some issues with that territory. I, I'm sure as a mental health professional and a doctor yourself, that's a very pregnant topic for you in your work with people. And I was really exposed to that conversation as a whole and my own kind of push-pull on it. I don't have a 
I don't have a perfect or even particularly good answer to what the right balance is between framing somebody's behavior through a useful set of language and over-diagnosing someone. But I think that being aware of that conversation is itself pretty useful. Then finally, just kind of close my my talking here. Um, just in general, as you were saying, the challenges of being in a body, the challenges of being in a fleshy body that has fleshy biological problems, and understanding that a lot of people's choices are not dictated by what they would prefer in a perfect world, hmm. but instead are dictated by um, issues of biology, by being low in serotonin or low in dopamine. Or we haven't actually posted the conversation yet, but we spoke with Dr. Bruce Perry. He's a fantastic expert on the subject of childhood trauma. And one of the things that he talked about was the importance of the first couple months of a child's life and how that can have cascading effects because you actually fundamentally change the way that your brain is set up to summarize a, a big topic and a big body of literature that he spoke on much more eloquently than I am right now. But you actually fundamentally change the way that your brain is wired, basically, based on events that happen early on in your life. And we don't have control over that. So fundamentally moving into a stance of um, empathy and common humanity for the ways in which people can really be prisoners of their own biology. And that's not their choice, and that's not their preference. And for me, it's just helped um, hold people's behavior that I find problematic in a much kind of softer and more open way. That's great. And I should add that um, you just did an amazing job for us researching and prepping each of these various topics we oh, did. Well, thank you. I learned stuff. And as I kidded you, uh, if you were prepping for the licensing exam as a psychologist, you would pass, at least in terms <laughs> of the book knowledge you know, of this territory. So it was really, really great job. And I learned things reading it. It was, it was kind of amazing, actually, reading the notes you Thank prepared. You. Leaning back and kind of reflecting on all of it and reflecting myself on being in mental health for 40-some-odd years and, and the depth of clinical understanding, uh, often backed up with a lot of formal research that's been developed over the years, I have a kind of overarching reflection, which is this. The discussion of psychopathology of various kinds, mental health issues like anxiety, depression, uh, paranoia, impulse control disorders, eruptive anger disorders, gambling, fixations, addictions of different kinds, and so forth. If you step back, you realize that all of those uh, descriptions of pathologies have to do with parts of the stream of consciousness. Hmm. or have to do with parts of the psyche altogether, including those elements that are sort of buried beneath the waterline, um, shaping things from the shadows. And I think a lot of people tend to regard their own mind as somehow a kind of congealed single mass. Mm -hmm. Totally, right? yeah. Yeah, right on. like I'm looking at a wall right mm -hmm. now that's painted a single color. No, I, I totally understand where you're going here. Yeah. I think you're totally right on. And it's... In other words, the essence of the clinical understanding of the mind has to do with differentiating particular parts out, eddies in the stream of consciousness, particular threads in the tapestry of the psyche, and so forth. And that itself draws us into something useful. Because if you've got a if your mind is one whole congealed mass, 
we are so screwed. Because <laughs> <laughs> how do you how do you intervene? It's just a, like a big block. If it's just a big brick, like no what can't do anything about it. But on the other hand, if it's sort of like a knitted tapestry, a knitted garment with many different threads and different patterns in it, and one of them, frankly, is just a mess and is maybe hurting other people too because there's mm, sharp edges mm-hmm. in it that bumping into others. All right, fine. So. It's like one part of the whole garment of the psyche that then you can noodle around with and gradually tease apart threads and snip some threads away or let them kind of fade away and replace them with other threads and reweave that portion of your own psyche and repair it, frankly. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's always going to be a little raggedy there, but you know, the mending will hold and you can go out when it's cold and still function. Not a terribly bad metaphor, actually, as I roll Yeah, on. actually a pretty wonderful <laughs> metaphor, I would say. So, but that's good news. It's good news that there's so much differentiation uh, and, you know, particularity uh, inside the mind because it, it gives us opportunities to noodle away with things and, um, you know, weave a, a more functional and happier garment. I totally agree with you. And another way to think about that idea is how we perceive ourselves how we perceive ourselves right. as either one kind right. of unitary thing versus perceiving it as a, to extend your metaphor here, a kind of mosaic with many tiles, yeah. all of which have a different tone and color at yeah. any given moment in time. Yeah. And therefore being able to perceive any individual facet of the stream of consciousness as not necessarily being indicative of the whole stream. That's wonderful. Right. It's just part. It's just part. And that means it's okay. You know, we right. all have those moments where our mind is grabbed by a negative impulse. Mm-hmm. For me, as I've spoken about very publicly on the podcast, super comfortable talking about it, my drug of choice is definitely anxiety. Mm-hmm. And that little feeling at like the base of the throat of things kind of rising and getting tight and clamping down a little bit and you start to get nervous and, you know, whatever associated symptoms might come along with that. And if I viewed that impulse as being completely tied in with the rest of myself, which Mm. is frankly how I think I viewed that impulse for probably about the first 25 years of my life, if not the first 28 years of my life, that the two were totally conjoined, the more that I've been able to view it as as a sensation that I am experiencing Mm. rather than as part of the whole of myself. Yeah wow, completely changes how you can relate to it. And it's made me, frankly, so much more aware of when I'm starting to kind of move in that direction and therefore so much more capable of intervening. Obviously, we kind of went down the rabbit hole there for a minute, but I think it's a good reflection on that topic territory as a whole. And moving forward, another big feature of our conversations over the past year, which tie into this a little bit, are various interviews that we did with a, um, frankly, really humbling group of guest experts who is kind of amazing, the people who agreed to come on this podcast and talk to us. I don't mean that with a false sense of modesty. I mean that really earnestly. We were both just kind of astounded often at uh, the just the caliber of the people that we had the opportunity to speak with. And it's really easy to get kind of used to that. And I definitely tried not to at various moments throughout the podcast. So of all of those people, obviously, all of the conversations we had with great, I enjoyed, I would say, really earnestly, just about every one of them. Are there any that kind of stand out to you as being particularly memorable for you personally, conversations you had where 
you really felt like you learned something or we just had an interaction that really sat well with you? Well, there's some that haven't yet posted and mm-hmm. will post. And I'll just call out both Bruce Perry, expert on trauma, and um, Paul Gilbert, expert on uh, compassion-focused therapy and, and compassion-focused approaches in life in general. Those are just, those popped out for me. I, I learned a lot from them. There were some, um, they were all really, really interesting. Uh, and a couple things. One is that I really got a lot, a lot out of Galen Ferguson's mm-hmm. interview. And especially his notion of welcoming. Hmm. That word has become part of my practice routinely. Uh, this The sense of welcoming the next moment as it arises, welcoming ostensibly unwanted or even, let's say, pathological parts of the mind. You know, there you are, you're really angry about something or you feel hurt or you, there's a pain that emerges in your body. Can you orient to it, welcoming it? And even in a really tender, sweet way, can you welcome this very life? Can you have a sense of uh, welcoming, in a sense, the ways that you as a consciousness were kind of thrust into or pulled into this particular universe with all its strangenesses? Like, what? I didn't make up this universe. I'm not sure I want to be here. But now I'm stuck here, and there's gravity, you know? Like, what? <laughs> and all these other people. Problems of a fleshy and body, you And know? I have to put things in one hole to stay alive and make sure some of them pass out another hole. Just keep staying alive. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> what? Right? Yeah. And, and so you can, but you can welcome that. And that was really cool. I really dug that. That was very, very good. Galen Ferguson. I really liked that. Let's see, a couple other headlines. Angela Duckworth came along in the beginning when mm-hmm. we just started doing this. Somehow was the first person that we yeah. spoke to, which was absolutely amazing that we got to speak yeah. with Dr. Duckworth that early on in the process, and her work's just fantastic. Yeah, exactly. There's a person who developed a lot about grit and a psychology professor, Ivy League at Penn, University of Pennsylvania, and very generous and focused a lot on how kids in particular, can acquire a greater sense of kind of sturdy fortitude and how that's a a variable that really probably matters more in life altogether Mm. than their scores on their SAT. And one of the things I also was struck by in her case, and it goes to the notion of psychopathology as well, which is how these ideas are used. Her research on grit could be used by typically politically conservative groups to argue that spending money on public services is a waste of time, that you either have grit or you don't have grit, and that's all there is to it. And her research could be used, as she points out, to say that that if someone doesn't have grit, it's all a matter of bad character. They didn't work hard to develop it rather than the fact that many people have underlying physical conditions um, that undermine their grid, or they've been kicked in the teeth by life, often depend based on situations they were born into of poverty, systemic racism, poor health care, poor services for mother-infant health. And so their first two months, let's say, 
were really, really rocky. And now, 25 years later, they're still dealing with the consequences inside themselves as they bump up against life. So she was very good about acknowledging those dangers, which are an illustration more generally Hmm. of how information can be used. And so I think a, a kind of a running theme for you and me for us over the course of the year has been this combination of presenting knowledge as best we currently understand it and as best that science currently understands it, while also being attentive to the limitations of that knowledge and the ways in which it can be used or misused. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. To follow that thread a little bit and talk about some of the ones that I found particularly affecting, particularly interesting, or I just learned a lot from, we all know that the food we eat today affects how we feel tomorrow. But what if I told you that it could affect how you felt in 20 years? We're learning so much these days about our bodies, and one of the challenges for people right now is that there's an enormous amount of information out there but it can be difficult to separate fact from fiction. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co-founder at Zoe. And the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Naomi's Apple Review says Zoe Science and Nutrition is... Super easy to consume, even if you don't understand the science, with loads of actionable tips, a great mix of guests, and interesting, cutting-edge science. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast, you can join Naomi and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeingWell today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash BeingWell. As somebody who has a long history of painful acne and related skin issues, I know how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's where our sponsor, OneSkin, comes in. Most skincare available on the market is designed to provide a temporary reduction in symptoms, without addressing many of the underlying causes. OneSkin's OS01 line of products targets cellular senescence. This is a key hallmark of aging, directly with their proprietary OS01 peptide. The OS01 peptide can reduce the number of senescent cells by up to 50%, strengthening the skin barrier, improving skin health markers, and reducing visible signs of aging. I've been using their OS01 face topical supplement, and I love how simple it is. You just cleanse, you pat your skin dry, and apply twice daily. OneSkin is the world's first skin longevity company. By focusing on the cellular aspects of aging, OneSkin keeps your skin looking and acting younger for longer. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL 
at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After you purchase, they'll ask where you heard about them, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. Or I was just kind of tickled by, uh, the first one is actually the first one that I did by myself. I had a conversation with Matt Diavella very early on in the year. He directed the Netflix documentary Minimalism, and uh, you were actually interviewed by him as part of that documentary, and I really look up to Matt's content as a content creator. He has one of the best channels on YouTube. I think that he does a blend of personal growth and self-help and entertainment and just what it's like to be a person trying to make things in the world in a way that really almost nobody else does. And I would recommend his YouTube channel to absolutely anyone. And it was just really cool, frankly, being able to talk with somebody for this podcast that I'd seen their content a couple years ago and went, wow, this is really great. Uh, So that was personally fulfilling for me. More informationally, Some of the people I'd point to are Lori Gottlieb, who we spoke to around the topic of maybe you should talk to someone. That's her many-time New York Times bestselling book at this point, one of my favorite books of the past year. She herself was such a warm character and such a a warm um, presence to speak with in an interview. I loved talking with uh, Sonia Lubomirsky, who did a lot of research on happiness and We really had the experience over and over again while talking with people for the podcast of talking with people from an academic background and just being really impressed with their, I mean, obviously, right, but just incredible command of the research and the facts and the true information, the real science that underpins the whole kind of self-help industrial complex. And I think that's our conversation with Sonia was really one of the best synthesis Syntheses, synthesizations, however you want to say it, of the research that exists on happiness that I've personally seen out there. And I had just a great time talking with her also. Yeah, stepping back, you're making me think for us that kind of takeaway, a takeaway from the whole topic territory that we covered this year is that number one, your experiences really matter. They affect you. And if you're affected today, there's a reason for it. Mm. It's not your fault. Your brain and body are designed to be affected by your experiences, especially if they were negative, particularly negative experiences in childhood. And first and foremost, negative experiences in childhood that involved other people. The brain is absolutely hardwired to prioritize um, those kind of experiences for maximum impact. So on the one hand, your experiences matter. And on the other hand, There are always things you can do to affect your experiences and to learn from your experiences and foster increasingly beneficial experiences in the minutes and years to come of your own life. Boom. Huge takeaway. And the corollary of that is, minimally with regard to the first part of it, to be thoughtful about the experiences we're engendering in other people. Hmm. Uh, Lately, I've been imagining walking around with um, shoes that have those spikes in them. Spike shoes. I've never worn them, like baseball or golf or something or other. And we, we walk on each other with spiked shoes. Mm. You know, we, we walk on each other. We affect each other. And through recognizing how much we're affected, you know, the like tender, vulnerable flesh, like under the fingernail, how delicate that is. We're very affected by the little splinters that of life that sp- stick under the fingernail, much the same way 
we can become splinters for other people. Mm. And it doesn't mean pulling, you know, holding back or walking on eggshells necessarily, but to have a kind of tenderness mm. in your own heart about recognizing that, you know, the experiences you're, you're triggering in others. I think that's a great reflection and a really useful reminder for a lot of people, myself included. As we go from looking back now to more looking forward into the new year, resolutions of various kinds can be a really helpful tool. They can also sometimes be problematic and debilitating. We try to make them a useful tool rather than a not particularly useful one. And uh, resolutions in general have almost become a little bit of a meme where it's a meme to make them, and it's also a meme to absolutely abandon them in the first two weeks of the new year. But all that being said, what are some of the things next year that you're really looking forward to? And are there any personal practices that you want to take on in your life? Whoa. Uh, <laughs> I didn't realize we were so intimate. Uh, that was good. Um, well, gosh, as you know, uh, got a new book coming out, and it's a book that for me, neurodharma is a culmination of a lot of personal practice and the pulling together of a lot of um, deep Buddhism mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. deep brain science. Very much applied in in seven key ways, which we'll talk about more later. Da -da. So the, the book's coming out. That, so I will be doing a fair amount of travel and uh, teaching and just activity related to it. and. Mm -hmm and sharing about it. And I'm really happy about that because I fear in some ways that the vision of the human possible that was so prevalent in the 60s and 70s, right? A thousand points of light, you know, stardust, we are golden, greening of America, self-actualization, uh, really a vision of the possible. I fear has just been crowded out by the mm. commercialism and the ugliness and the the motivated polarization in American politics. And I think it's really important to hold on to a vision of what's possible, the realistic possible for ourselves, for others, and for the world altogether, uh, and stand up against those who are trying to crowd out or cloud that vision of the possible for their own typically tribalistic or profit-oriented motives. So that territory of the human possible is enormously inspiring. And I think it's important and, and brave, actually, mm -hmm. to stand up for it. So that's a big year for me, you know. Also, it's kind of a wrap-up year in a lot of ways. So I'm kind of late-stage career. And it's a very interesting moment. We could do a whole podcast, I think, on uh, what do you do next, mm -hmm. right? I know you're kind of pondering that one for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and one of the interesting categories of what do you do next is what do you do when you've become quite good at or successful at something? Your business is thriving, your practice is flourishing, you're very good at a, third, a certain thing. What do you do then, right? Mm -hmm. It's really interesting. And one of the books I kind of threatened to write, I doubt I ever will, working title is Walking Away. Mm. In other words, what do you do? There, there are many examples of people who walked away from something that was very successful. And fear not, podcast listeners, I'm not going to disappear <laughs> uh, to wander the earth like Cain, helping people or going, 
taking robes and going forth into homelessness, vows of silence, not quite ready for that one. Um, but in general, I'm really doing a lot of reflecting about, okay, I did all this. Now what? Right? And what does the innermost being really, really long for? So that's going to be a lot of my own exploration next year. I think that's a great topic of exploration and something certainly very, uh, very deep and personal in your life and something yeah. I have a lot of feeling for as your son, of course, and yeah. really looking forward to talking more about your new book, which is coming out. Oh, May 5th, 2020. May 5th, 2020. Got to get the early plug in. Um, but no, just speaking personally for a second, uh, you've written, depending on how you count, kind of six-ish major books at this point, including Neurodharma. Is that more or less Well, they're right? integers, you know, so it's... <laughs> There's, it's, it's not like three and three quarters. It's, it's six. Well, you six. know, okay, six, six. You're either pregnant or you're not. The sure. book published or it didn't. You know. There it is. This right. is so the sixth one's coming out. Yeah, yeah. the sixth one's coming Pretty out. Pretty bizarre, honestly. Like, Crazy what? to think about, like, right? What? You definitely didn't set out, I don't think, to write nope. six books, but here nope. we are. And, you know, just speaking frankly about it, there are books that have been more... Uh, you know, although all children are your favorite, some of them are maybe more favorite than others. And I think that it's fair to say that this is one of your most favoritest books yep. that uh, you've written. You've had a real personal feeling for it. You've been extremely excited about it. Yeah. It's a topic that you've wanted to go into for a long time. It's it really about begins. enlightenment. Yeah, fundamentally. Which is freaking difficult to write about mm -hmm. in a useful way. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, you know, I've read a lot of it. Yep. And, and you helped me get better for us. Well, thank you. To your credit. Thank one, you. One of my best readers. Yeah, I definitely tried to have a hand in uh, little edits for it and little yeah. pieces of advice. And I, I, too, think it's a great book. So really looking forward to that. I'm sure we'll talk about it uh, mm -hmm. in much greater detail yeah. in the new year and leading up to its release. To turn the lens onto myself for a second and kind of attempt to answer this question, a lot of the same questions that you're asking yourself, frankly, are kind of pregnant in my own life around well, what do I do now? Mm -hmm. um, it's been wonderful to do all the things I've been doing, but do I want to step into more of a role as a content creator mm -hmm. rather than kind of a uh, content deliverer, which curator. is sort of, yeah. yeah, curator, which is more of what I do right now. And uh, how do I want to go about asking myself that question in a context where I am enormously privileged and where my life is really quite good, you know? And it, Darn. that's, yeah, wow, strategy really sucks, fails. man. I need to make you suffer more. Exactly. So you be more motivated. That's right. And, you know, and I do think that there is a connection between. It's one way to be motivated. Yeah, it's one way to be motivated. There are many other ways to be motivated. And that is something else that I'm thinking about over the next year. So as a personal practice, I have a lot of practices around uh, health and diligence of various kinds, including my gym practices. But on a kind of a personal level, one of the things that I really want to try to do a little bit differently over the next year is to reevaluate my self-concept. And that kind of sounds very high-minded. But just to kind of put it very simply, um, we all have a view of ourselves that exists through time. It's built over 10,000 little interactions that we have 10,000 times a day. And most of those interactions that really carried the heaviest stones in our lives happened when we were really young. Um, that was something you just spoke to a moment ago. And I think that some of those things are really integral to who we are. Some of those things are just kind of there at this point, and they're really tough to put down. But I also think that there are little ways in which we make choices around the person that we want to be ultimately. 
and really reevaluating how we view ourselves and what are the assumptions that we're making about our nature. Are we more of a thinking person or more of a feeling person? Are we more of a coffee person or more of a tea person? Are we more of an extrovert or an introvert? How many of those views are based on what we actually are? And how many of those views are based on just kind of the set of self-knowledge that we've learned through ourselves and through other people over the years? And I think it's okay every once in a while to take a step back and go, huh, am I doing this because I want to be doing this? Or am I doing this because I have been taught that this is the role I'm supposed to fill in this interaction right now? And that's a subtle but I think deeply important set of evaluations to run on yourself. And so that's my big project over the next year where I want to ask myself that question more often. Wow. Well, you heard it here first, folks, because <laughs> I heard it here first, too. That's really interesting for yeah. us. So how do you deal with the fear about disengaging from a familiar self-concept? Well, I feel like that's probably a whole other podcast episode that I would love to explore sometime when I have more actual practice. But um, my kind of one second take on it, on a deep, deep question that I have at best very imperfect answers to, is uh, I think a lot of it comes back to what I mentioned before around partial versions of the self versus the entire tapestry of the self. Hmm. Stepping back from the feel from the fear of just kind of dissolving or the fear of uncertainty that a new behavior compels. For me, uh, speaking personally, I'm very comfortable engaging most topics uh, from the stance of the fact around it, Mm -hmm. and I'm pretty comfortable engaging the feeling around it. But I tend to move more into fact-finding and problem-solving. That's my kind of comfort zone, is Mm fact-finding and problem-solving. And I'm comfortable there, because that is a area of competence for me. Mm-hmm. I know that it's an area of competence. I don't have to have any false modesty around it. It just is. That's a thing I'm good at. But there are plenty of things that I'm not good at. And when I move into those territories, mm-hmm. I begin to feel afraid on some level that I'll make a mistake or I'll do something wrong. That's my kind of compulsion that keeps me from engaging that material. And a lot of it, I think, is just comes from being like, yeah, that fear exists and I'm going to kind of do it anyway. A lot of it comes from viewing the fear as a experience that I'm having rather than as a desire that I'm having. I think that that's a huge distinction. And then I've also gotten a lot of mileage out of uh, Professor Ferguson's material on welcoming and viewing fear as a companion mm-hmm. rather than as a uh, form of opposition. Yeah. So that's a, a cliff notes to a big conversation. Yeah, as, as we reflect on the year to come and and more generally and 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 in my own practice the notion from tibet or the languaging i'll just put it that way from tibetan buddhism of basic goodness Mm -hmm. and can one trust in one's basic goodness literally in the sense of a feeling Mm -hmm. of it that it's a refuge that it's a ground it's like a the safety net if you mess up and are embarrassed, there's a safety net. The fundamental ground of who you are is, is basic goodness. Mm-hmm. And is there a felt trust in that continuously? Now, of course, that's a practice to cultivate. And it, it's interesting to talk of it as a practice to cultivate, to recognize what's always already true. Mm. But that's kind of how it is. 
And I know for myself, it's kind of shocking, actually, as someone who's been at this a long time, how easily and quickly sometimes I can lose track of that felt trust and basic goodness, Mm -hmm. my own basic nature, the universal goodness and deep down in everyone. It's humbling and also inspiring to and challenging in a good way. It's like, all right, how can a person literally go through 16 hours times 60 minutes times 60 seconds over the course of a day while maintaining a sense of being in touch with their own basic goodness. That's wonderfully challenging, right? To approach, you know, to move past 10% of the seconds in your day or my day and uh, move toward. Can you be in touch with basic goodness, literally in touch with it continuously, mm. uh, the majority of the seconds in your waking day? Mm. Well, that's, that, that right there would be a tipping point, I think, for a lot, a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're looking for a resolution for the new year, if you've had a hard time coming up with one so far, I think that that suggestion around staying in touch with your basic goodness to the extent you can, second after second after second, is a really wonderful practice. Or at the very least, maybe once an hour at the top of the hour, you take a moment, you take a deep breath, and you just remind yourself, hey, I'm a basically good person. So I think on that note, that's a wonderful note to close this episode on. Again, thank you so much for supporting the podcast in 2019. We will continue to be here in 2020. Again, I would like to give a a final thank you to everyone for taking the time to download it, to listen to it, to engage with this material, to make these strides in your own life. I've been trying to implement these tools in my life as well. And any support that you've given to the podcast, whether it be simply listening to it, sharing it with a friend, writing a review for it. We've received so many amazing reviews through different platforms, and uh, selfishly, I absolutely love reading them. So thank you for writing them. I truly read every single one of them. And uh, it's just been a great ride over the past year. So thank you again so much for your support, and we will be seeing you in 2020. So until then, thanks for listening. 